Bow your head in prayer with me this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have already encountered in just the few moments we've spent together multiple reasons to give you praise and glory. The testimony we just heard is a story that only our Heavenly Father could write, and only your power could execute, only your Spirit could apply, and only through the blood of Jesus Christ is it possible for reconciliation not only to happen between men, but ultimately reconciliation between sinners and Almighty God. That is why we are here today, O Heavenly Father. Today as we read back in history, the fingerprints as we do what, as it were, a forensic study of the character of our God interacting with history, providing redemptive joy, milestones, revelation to your people. I pray that it would communicate to us to further degree your power so that we rush back to join together in worship and praise next week for as many days and as many times as you call your people together. Ultimately, that you might be glorified in our hearts and through our hearts and lips to the people you've called us to reach, that we might be faithful to your final words before you were ascended into resurrected glory to make disciples of all nations, recognizing and drawing faith from the assurance that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let this word be communicated by your spirit, understanding its power rests in you, that we might benefit in the hearing. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 30. This morning is our Psalm series week. In Psalm chapter 30, we're reminded of a few things about the heart and life and ministry and calling of David. The title of this morning's message is, My Glory, Your Praise. If we go to the last verse, verse 12, we get this phrase, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. That my glory, that is David's glory, may sing your praise, that is the Heavenly Father's praise, God's praise, the Lord's praise, and not be silent. David's glory was the praise of the Lord. That is David's purpose, David's call, David's identity, David's value that he saw for himself. His life, aim, calling, purpose, direction was to praise, to voice, to serve his Lord. My glory, your praise. And so it is for us, his servants, our glory ought to be his praise. Let's open by reading these 12 verses. First of all, there's a title, A Psalm of David, A Song at the Dedication of the Temple. And here we open in verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, His saints, and give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism reads something as follows. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? 
End meaning purpose, aim. What is his calling? What is the reason that he is on this earth? And then the answer follows. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There are three scripture proofs that I found that are cited for this answer. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Psalm 73 verses 24 through 26. Also John 17, 22 and 24. But we could certainly add Psalm 30 and particularly verses 11 and 12. In other words, how do we know that the chief end of man, his purpose for existence, is ultimately centered on this truth to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Well, we know it through the proclamation of David when he revealed his own purpose for living. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing and loosed my sackcloth and clothed me, clothed me with gladness. And why? Why does God provide? Why does God satisfy? Why does God answer prayers? Why does God equip us with life and everything pertaining to life and godliness? The answer, verse 12, that my glory may sing praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. If we could tap into this reason for existence, the sort of resonant pitch of our created design, we would find such a fulfillment and a unity and an inertia of motive such that the world could never shut us down. We have a few enemies against us in this regard. It's sometimes described as the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we also have effective weapons to fight all three. But what is the ultimate purpose and why we fight and how do we judge that we're taking ground in that regard? Well, when we begin to step into more motives and more reasons and more activity, more decisions, more applications that are governed by this guiding thought, Lord, may I glorify you by enjoying you forever. May I ask the ultimate question, why have you created me? And may I surrender to that ultimate lordship and ask, not my will, but thine be done. As we do that, we won't find the answer coming by way of an easy life, the kind of peace and prosperity this world proclaims, expects, and promises. We won't find the kind of self-centered, self-gratifying, selfish fulfillment that really makes this world go round. We might shop, not shop as frequently at the merchants of our day who totally provide all of, who totally cater to the most base desires of man and provide products, services, and all these other things for self-indulgent reasons. But one thing we will have is a superior joy of faithfulness and a perseverance that will bring us all the way through trials. So whether we prosper or whether we go through periods of lack, we will have an unwavering confidence, be it unto me according to thy will. Ultimately, if I can find what it's like, find my peace and joy in living for the glory of God, I can be unfazed by the ebb and flow of this world. Though this world, fallen and corrupted by sin, might throw trials in my direction to the nth degree to death itself from now until eternity, I know one thing for sure. It is just but a breath, but a moment, and then I will trade this sackcloth for gladness. I will trade this mourning, this sadness, this melancholy, realistic grappling with today, with life, I will trade it for dancing. And not a dancing, some kind of drunken mirth under the influence of escape mechanisms like alcohol or just denying my circumstances or some kind of self-indulgent type of behavior here. No, the kind of dancing that celebrates something to be thankful and something to draw joy from that far eclipses myself or yourself. We wonder sometimes at the juxtaposition in the life of David. In one sense or in one record, we have the account of his graphic and heinous sin. 
But then on the other side, we have the account of a man who is said to have a heart after God's own. How do we know or what is evidence? Where can we study the words of David and find evidence of God's own heart? Well, it's in psalms like this that declare, my, May my glory sing your praise and not be silent. And then the gracious hope and beautiful promise is that though this man was a sinner, with that worldview perspective, he nevertheless shared the heart of his designer because that's what God had ultimately created him for. And his life was being redeemed toward that end. This psalm would make a great proof text for the Westminster's first question. This, all, this psalm also either expresses or implies the, within its context Four preeminent considerations as we think of worldview and the essence of man. And these questions really gnaw at the human mind and the psyche, and they are inescapable. We might try to avoid them, we might try to seek after lies, but ultimately there's four things that all philosophical considerations are reduced to when we consider our purpose for existence. These aren't original to me. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, where do I come from? Meaning, why am I here? Morality, what should I do? And destiny, where am I going? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What should I do? Where am I going? There's answers and there's doctrines blowing in the wind to all four of those questions. But there is only one narrow way, truth and life, that answers truthfully all four. And you can find those answers in a psalm like Psalm chapter 30. You can find those answers in the whole Word of God and the whole counsel of Scripture. Where did I come from? I came from my Creator, God. I am made in His image. Why did He make me? What's the meaning of my life? That, in David's words, my glory may sing praise and not be silent. What should I do? I should obey His every word and trust His redemptive power to make me and sanctify me into the image of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And where am I going? Well, one day we will be singing songs like the ones we sang today, not in expectation, but in celebration of an arrival. When we cross the threshold to glory, we enter in where the wedding bells are ringing. And we, the bridegroom of Christ, will share in the festival of festivals the festival of the centuries of history, the marriage supper of the Lamb. One day we will step onto eternity's shores and death will just be a memory. Death will just be a memory. And we will enter in, those wedding bells will ring, the bride will come together and we will sing. That is our destiny. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forevermore. There is only one way the final phrase of David's Psalm 30 could come true, and that's if his soul was redeemed ultimately by the blood of Christ that would, would come and provide the propitiation for his sin. The atoning sacrifice that David believed would come in faith arrived in the fullness of time in our Lord Jesus Christ and ushered David and every saint, ultimately it will, into the presence of God to do what? To fulfill our ultimate destiny, to give thanks to God forevermore. That's the theme of this psalm. The best theme statement in here that I can find that really summarizes the intent here and the thrust of this psalm is that, that my glory may sing your praise. It's the bookends at the end and at the beginning. In verse 1, David says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. What does it mean to extol? It means to live for the glory of someone else, to declare and to publish his renown and his glory. That you might live for his name's sake. That you might seek ways to reflect him more. That I may decrease, as John the Baptist says, and he might increase. That I may be transformed into the image of the Son of God, as we read in 2 Corinthians. That the spots and the blemishes that now color the bride as she is being purified might be erased and scrubbed clean by the washing of the water of the Word. That we might be presented 
a chaste and pure bride for Jesus Christ. Having desires and a life course heading that direction will give us the ability to be like David with a man, as a man and a woman after his heart who looks for opportunity and grasps every moment possible and harnesses it in his energy and affections toward the goal of extolling the Lord. Why? Because he has drawn us up, has not ultimately let our foes rejoice over us. Those ultimate foes in the form of sin, our waywardness of heart, our heart that easily deceives us, and the enemy of our souls, because the Lord has drawn us up and not let those foes rejoice over us, we have every reason to extol and every reason to give thanks forever that our glory might sing His praise today. That was point number one, the theme. Point number two, the title. The title of this psalm is interesting, especially when you see it back to back, when you consider it back to back with the content. This is a psalm of David we read at the title, in the title here, a song at the dedication of the temple. Is it strange to us as we read this that this song would be a temple dedication song? When we consider what David is praying here, it seems a very personal prayer. It doesn't seem like an inaugural, you know, patriotic, nationalistic, uh, pep rally type song to inaugurate a moment in redemptive history or Israel's national history to particularly set apart and identify the commemoration of something like that. But that would just be the short-sightedness that our first glance would give us. There's a deeper reason, I think, here why the title and the content exist side by side as they do. We'll ask, I'll ask the question again and read some verses. If this is a song of dedication for the temple, why does David say, O oh God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me? Verse 2, O oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Notice with particular interest in verse 6, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. But then notice, he finishes that phrase in verse 7 with, You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. He goes on to ask, What profit is there in death? And he pleads with the Lord that his glory will be less made known in some sense if he dies without having more breath in his lungs to offer God praise. And on that basis, he negotiates for his own salvation. But as we consider the title in relationship to the context, I think this principle comes into view. Listen carefully. David realizes that sinners need to be reminded that it is delusional to consider ourselves secure and prosperous so long as the work of the Lord is neglected among us. David realizes that sinners need to be remind, reminded, excuse me, it is delusional to consider ourselves secure and prosperous so long as the work of the Lord is neglected among us. Again, verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. What is the problem here? The basis for his confidence was his own prosperity. And by God's favor, his mountain had stood strong. But when the source of his confidence and when his aim in life and his security and confidence and, and peace moved from that your glory may be my praise, when it moved from that to I feel comfortable and secure from my enemies in my own strength and by my own means, what did the Lord graciously do? He, in a chastising and limited way, hid his face so that David might cry again to the Lord and plead for mercy. In other words, there is blessing, there is prosperity that God pours out on a people who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There are cultural benefits to people humbling themselves, seeking the face of God, and then the promise, I will heal their land. 
But there's also a danger in prosperity. David knew that this was something that needed to be declared when a temple was built and there before them was the architectural representation of their labor and a symbolic moment in their history. But if they thought the stones gave them power, if they thought their artistry was the source of their confidence, if they thought, wait, we have really accomplished something here, if they rallied behind the walls of Jerusalem, if they stood in the court and they forgot their God, they rested on their riches, on their acclaim, on their own ability to produce and to promote and to build something, and that would ultimately be their downfall. And God would graciously remind them that it is not the work of your hands in which you are secure, but it is in the work of my hands in which you are kept. It is delusional to consider ourselves secure and prosperous so long as the work of the Lord is neglected among us. In our, the life course of our nation, related to our religious commitments, faithfulness to the original intent of some of our framers and founders, we can relate to this concept. A very salient quote is as follows, and this comes from Cotton Mather, a Puritan preacher. One of the first religious and spiritual influences, biblically grounded, a man of God who proclaimed truth, the kind of truth that you can build a nation on. He not only proclaimed truth on how to unite and govern yourselves under the authority of Almighty God, but he also issued a warning that reminds us of David's words. He said, religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. This was a warning, I don't know, 350, 400 years ago. Be careful, America. If your religion begets prosperity, and if you let the consequence of your life together uh, move to trusting in your riches and away from the hand of God, then the daughter devours the mother and you stand deserving of judgment. This is what the people needed to realize at an inaugural moment in their history. Yes, it was amazing and significant, but they needed to remember why, and they needed warnings that if they left their first love, their hearts could grow hard, and the only answer was repentance. Note two accompanying texts. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel, again, the heart of David, the positive sense comes out. This is pre-temple sentiments, if you will, before the temple was constructed. As you recall, though David collected many items and raw materials and artisans to create the temple, to make the temple, he never himself got to see the fruition. Just like Moses, called to lead his people in the Exodus, was barred from entering Canaan land, so David passed on the commissioning of the temple itself to his son Solomon. But there was a time when he anguished and planned and had vision for this event. He had godly desires to that end. And in 2 Samuel, we read of them, verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 1, Now when the king lived in his house, that's David, and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. What's wrong with this picture? Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up my people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with my people Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you, have, wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name like the names of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. 
and the violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. There's two promises going on here. I will have security for my people and a physical place to represent my presence among them. You won't be the man to build that, but I will build your house, a lineage that will continue, that will ultimately save my people. And who do we read of in the first pages of the gospel as the son of David? None other but our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the redemptive themes that are growing underneath the surface. Now I ask you this hypothetical. In this day, if David had built the temple, if people flocked to it, but they forgot the expectation of that covenant promise, don't look to this temple as much as you look to the fulfillment of my promise that a branch would come from the root of Jesse, that a son of David would come to ultimately wash away your sins, that people would, might be in danger, indeed they would, of religion begetting prosperity and the daughter devouring the mother. In Haggai chapter 1, if you would turn there with me, Jean read this earlier in the service. At this time, this exact warning was not heeded, and because the song that David had written, the heart of it did not stick with God's people. They didn't heed the warnings. There came a time when the temple was destroyed, where God's presence was moved away, we read of those horrible moments in Ezekiel. But God also had a rebuilding plan, and He commissioned a rebuilding through His servant Zerubbabel and company. And in Haggai chapter 1, we read of these moments where there's going to be a reinstitution of the temple of God, but there's also a problem among the people. Here in uh, verse 2, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you, you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, and you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm, and he who earns his wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Let's pause there. Remember Psalm 30? The juxtaposition of the situation was exactly opposite. We are clothed in sackcloth now, but we will receive robes of gladness. Their weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God's anger is for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. Right now, we are fraught with mourning, but soon we will be dancing. What is the difference between the two situations? Well, David is making the glory of God his passion. But during this time in Haggai, the people care more about themselves than they do the glory of God. That's why their houses are furnished and paneled. They're living comfortable, luxurious lifestyles. They're keeping up with the Joneses. They have all the amenities that the luxurious lifestyle of the time could afford them. But what was wrong with the picture? The work of the Lord was neglected among them. Remember, it is delusional to consider ourselves secure and prosperous and rich so long as the work of the Lord is neglected among us. Applications of this principle are pretty easy today. Do you find it ironic when you turn, into the, turn to the news that we've been preoccupied with the state of the economy for years now? Now, relatively speaking, the land in which we live is one of the most materially prosperous societies this globe has ever known. Yet we sow our wages into bags with holes. It's as if we clothe ourselves and no one is warm. It's as if we've sown much and harvested little and our paneled houses and our empires are losing value. We're underwater in our mortgages. If you read in Isaiah, when the prophet spoke, there was huge homes and vineyard budding up the vineyard. And the picture of prosperity is evident there. 
Vineyards didn't give you the necessary sustenance for eating, like, you know, bread and the foodstuffs. They were a luxurious enterprise. A highly developed, prosperous society could afford to have specialized labor, harvesting only from vineyards. A highly developed, specialized society like America, that is. But the houses grew empty. The daughter devoured the mother, as it were. Their original faithfulness to the Lord had beget them prosperity. But like the prodigal son, they were wasting it, squandering it, the legacy of their forefathers, on wine, women, and song, and everything was crumbling around them. And though they were rich by technical measure, and though they had gold brimming in their banks, and though they were flush with cash compared to other societies and even their previous history, it was as if they had sown into a bag with holes. But notice the change in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. There's our theme. There's our meaning. There's our destiny. That my glory may sing praise to your name. Not that my glory may be represented by my house, by my property, by my possessions, by my social status, by my vocation, by my plans, by my retirement goals. But instead, that my glory may be to praise the Lord. That I would take pleasure in glorifying Him. Verse 9, you looked for much and behold it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Does it ever feel like? The bills are never quite paid, and you can never get ahead, and we just tread water. And do we hear that complaint, that lament from this relatively prosperous society? Why, declares the word of Lord of hosts, again, verse 9, because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So long as the work of the Lord is neglected among us, it is delusional to consider ourselves prosperous. Verse 10, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all labors. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, and the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. A mighty revival sprung out among the people broke out in this particular historical context here. The words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came... And notice their change of direction and course. They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the 24th month, day of the month, in the sixth day, in the second year of Darius the king. We would do well to heed the warning of David. Do you see now why the title and the content of David's psalm were a great match? It's because the warnings of Psalm 30 that in our prosperity, if we, in our hubris and our pride, say we shall never be moved, we drift in our worship to self away from the Almighty. Thirdly, poetic juxtapositions. I mentioned the song we sung earlier, and it strikes me as a beautiful illustration of what we read poetically in Psalm chapter 30. When we arrive on eternity's shores, death is just a memory and tears are no more. We enter in where the wedding bells sing, the bride will come together, and we'll sing, you're beautiful. In the account of creation, in biblical worldview, and as the philosophical point of reference for hope, we find that night precedes day. Out of the darkness, God spoke, and there was light. If you turn to the book of Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes, man and his sin, his short-sighted fallenness, and his abandonment of God, and his disbelief of his sovereignty, and his rebellion, and seeking only his own glory, 
turns to the philosophy of despair. For man who's forgotten that God is his creator and that joy comes in the morning and that night does not follow day but precedes it, for man that has forgotten that truth, he begins to change the aim and the course, his morality and his meaning because he sees a different destiny. He begins to live for this life and to live for the moment. He begins to eat and to drink and be merry, for tomorrow he dies. He believes the closest thing to prosperity and fulfillment and peace that he'll ever experience is in the scope of this lifetime. And after death, that's a scary thought. All bets are off, either so much dirt or whatever. If he can gain as much as he possibly can here, focus his attention on success and gathering for himself, tearing down his barns to build bigger ones, he finds that a more, more tangible source of prosperity and security. But what does it betray? Ultimately, a rebellion and a lack of faith in the God who creates day out of darkness. For us, the New Testament gives us this promise that our weeping will break forth into newness of joy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the message in the new covenant is so powerful. This one truth alone ought to give you grace to endure the deepest, the darkest, the hardest of trials. And indeed, it gave Paul that very strength. Verse 17, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Eternity sure, where death is just a memory and tears are no more. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Day follows night. We go back to Psalm chapter 30, and we see right in the first verse, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Where his foes would have kept him down in these forces of sin, the enemies that faced him would hold him down and drag him ultimately to hell. Instead of that to look forward to, there's a drawing up that his spirit feels as it echoes to the Lord in glorious song, I extol you that my glory may sing your praise. From being drawn down, he is drawn up. When he was held down in his sin, he is resurrected to newness of life. Where we are dead on our trespasses, we are resurrected by the miraculous power that happens in regeneration when we are born again. Notice in verse 2, O Lord my God, when I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. He was in a state of frantic helplessness, probably is how he felt. But he knew that he could look to the hills, where does my help come from? And where he was crying in anguish, he then received healing from the Lord. Where he was in the pit of Sheol and destined for that, O Lord, you have brought, me, brought up my soul from Sheol and restored me to life. From that point of, depths, of the depths of despair, David is brought up in the spirit and restored to newness of life. Even God's anger ex exists only for a moment in the chastening sense, but what does it yield? Favor for a lifetime. Even the weeping that we incur in this life when difficult things and burdens too heavy for us to bear fall on our shoulders, we cast our cares upon the Lord and what happens? Joy comes in the morning. He turns our mourning, our grieving into dancing and ultimately replaces our sackcloth for gladness. The robes of righteousness, the purity of Jesus Christ, blood washing power will one day be our raiment in glory these are the poetic juxtapositions this is the philosophical reality this is the understanding of the hope of the believer it's not get it while you can because all bets are off for eternity and it's a rat race for self-indulgence until the day we die no that be that belief affirms that this is the best it's going to be that is not true 
For the believer, this is the worst it'll ever get. But this darkness will break forth in newness of day. And even in redemptive history, we see this picture. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, prophesies that there is a dawning sunrise breaking through on history as Jesus Christ and the one who precedes him saying, make straight the way, or repent. He's making straight the way of the Lord for the kingdom of God is at hand. This dawning, the advent of Christ, the incarnation, is like the rising in the sun over the darkness of human sin. And we are living in those sun rays today. No matter how dark this world gets, they can never erase the historical reality of the incarnation and Jesus Christ, God and man here, sacrificed for our sins and our hope and salvation. It's a whole new era. The new covenant is here. The door has closed on the old and the new wineskins have been brought here and, they, and that door will never shut again. I don't care if they change the calendar system. They will never erase the significance of B.C. and A.D. Because on that moment, the destiny of history hinges. And every soul in relationship to that event will be judged accordingly. Either sent to hell eternal at judgment day or ushered in by the blood of Christ alone to eternity's shores. That is the hope of the future for the believer. David looked forward to that day, but we are living in the rays of the dawning sun. How much more an encouragement and inspiration ought we to have when David exhorts saints sing praise, praises to the Lord. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. How much more are we partakers in so great a promise. What is true prosperity according to David? Well, true happiness is found in extolling the Lord. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. What is true fortune? What is true wealth in a kingdom mindset? It's not saving up for ourselves treasures on this earth where moth and rust corrupt, but it's answers to prayer that we would be more like Him and ultimately receive divine healing in every area of our life that needs to be conformed to the perfection of Jesus Christ. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. And that word in the Hebrew is comprehensive. It's not just physical malady, though it is that. When God's will sees fit to raise you to newness of life and rejuvenate your physical body for your calling, that's certainly encompassed here, but it's also healing of your circumstances. Your past strikes against you, emotional scars, enemies that surround you, discouraging circumstances, difficult mindsets, fears, concerns, problems, of all sorts and shapes and sizes. These are the conditions that God's divine healing power can rectify in a moment. And those are the answered prayers that represent true wealth for the believer. Thirdly, true possessions, storing up things, things that we rely on and collect and have a passion and an affection for. We continue to read in verse 3, O Lord, you have brought my soul up from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. And if we can become possessors of eternal life, we have the greatest treasure known to mankind, period, and nothing should eclipse it in our value set as we consider what is riches, what are riches, what is wealth. True social success. Everyone wants to be friends with the right crowd, typically in their sin. And a lot of times we position ourselves to be influential and accepted by those that we most admire. Who are these people in a God-centered worldview? Who are these people to David? In verse 4, he says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. David surrounds himself in the assembly of the beloved with saints and members who share the most important things in common. That isn't pursuits, vocation, dreams, desires, the way you look, your hobbies, your dress. None of those things, no. That's the communion of the saints. The saints who are reminded when they break the bread and drink the juice that Jesus Christ himself changed utterly and fundamentally the constitution of their eternal being. And on that basis, they have the sweetest, most enduring fellowship. And those friendships will go beyond this life into eternity itself. This is social success for David. This is true prosperity, true significance, and true influence we find in verses 9 and 12. What would it profit it? 
what, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Notice David doesn't say, hey, you'll lose a great warrior you know, in me. I, I can subdue more kingdoms around. You don't want to lose me, God. I'm going to be very influential, you know, and I have a very important ministry and so on. No, more basic than that. Lord, don't kill me so soon. I, ha- I want more breath in my lungs to offer you praise. Significance for David, influence for David, was drawing attention not to himself, not building something of his own design, but drawing attention to the Lord and praising the Almighty, telling of his faithfulness that my glory again may sing your praise and not be silent, O Lord, my God. I will give thanks to you forever. And we've already covered true clothing. Verse 11, you have turned me, turned for me my mourning into dancing. You loosened my sackcloth and clothed me in gladness. Where other kings of the earth would wrap themselves in riches, oftentimes David would shed the robes of dignity to do what? to be less encumbered, to dance and rejoice before his Lord. David was a king like no other. He really was, as far as human kings are concerned. He was passionate about the glory of the Lord. Where other kings were tempted by riches and clothed themselves with the finest raiment and furs and collected for themselves from far away lands jewels and precious metals and draped themselves in these things to give the idea of regal character and power and wealth, David would just assume set those robes aside and worship his God and worship his God less encumbered by the riches and trappings of self-centered identity. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Turn with me in closing to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've talked about the theme that our passion would be to give praise to the Almighty. We've talked about the title and the content. We've talked about that these juxtapositions, how night breaks forth into day. We talked about a reordering of our priorities according to biblical terms of value and prosperity. And finally, there's this beautiful new covenant application in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you know, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Again, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, not You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. David looked forward to a day when a physical temple would be built. And we are living in a day where the Holy Spirit resides in human temples. If you are a believer with me today, that means you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So what? how should we take take Psalm 30? if not as a dedication of this temple to the service of the Lord. When we come together and embrace the assembly of the saints every time we assemble, it's a worthy occasion to sing songs of dedication with the saints that we may not be tempted to consider any definition of livelihood independent of our redemption. Going back to the lesson of Psalm 30, It would be delusional to consider ourselves secure, prosperous, so long as the work of the Lord is neglected among us. If we forget, that is, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and songs of dedication of this temple to the Lord ought to be embraced with all the saints together in this place, we may be in danger of the warnings that Psalm 30 and Haggai 1 give us when we stand in need of repentance. We need to remember that we are not our own, but we are bought with a price. This is a change that has happened in us where we no longer own our future, but our origin, our meaning, our morality and destiny is rooted in the one who purchased our souls. Who owns the title deed to you, to your soul? 
Well, if you are a believer in this room, if you are a Christian, if you have bowed your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the deed to your soul is in the hands of Almighty God. You answer to Him. He owns you. So now we go before His presence and we say, may my glory serve your praise. You own me. I surrender. You're my sovereign. If there's any way in me that is wayward enough to think that it is my prerogative to choose this or that, indulge this or that, root that out. Search me and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the path everlasting that my glory may sing your praise. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, reminded afresh today that we are your temples, that we are, Lord Jesus, the place of your dwelling. If the blood of Jesus Christ is indeed the life-changing moment of our soul's future, we thank you, Lord, that we are not our own. We thank you that you've called us out as a peculiar people, a royal priesthood to show forth the praises of our God that you've commissioned us to a chief end according to the redemptive power of your blood to reclaim our original design to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Now in this prayer we recognize that there's areas of our life that stand outside that vision. We pray that you would trim them off. We give the power of your spirit permission, Lord. We surrender to say sanctify us, change us, shape us, mold us, Soften the clay, put us on the wheel, have your way, not our will, but yours be done. May we echo the heart of David, that we would live for the glory of the Almighty, and that if we should ever stray, that your chastening rod of correction and your shepherd's staff would guide us in the way. Even through those moments of despair and sin in the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, we pray that you would bring your sheep, Lord, into the paths of righteousness for your name's sake, that you might be glorified, that we might find our deepest satisfaction in giving glory to your holy name, both now and forevermore. In the name of Jesus, amen.